Coming up on today's show. <laughs> you really cannot tell a song what to do. And if you start doing that, then you're not going to get the song. You're going to get an idea of the song. But the song knows exactly what it wants to say. Welcome to another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, featuring interviews with guests who are having success in entertainment, primarily music. I am Bruce Wozniak, talking to guests who are singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, and more from the worldwide music community. Be sure you are on the list for the weekly e-newsletter. I only send out on Wednesday when a new episode of this show comes out, so make sure you're signed up to receive that for free to your inbox. If you're not already getting it, go to my podcast website, nhte.net and pop your email address into the sign-up box. I do publish exclusives in there from time to time, so don't miss out. I love hearing from listeners of this show. You can write to podcast at nhte.net, or instead of email, you are welcome to DM me through the at Now Hear This Entertainment Instagram account. Joining me today on location in Alabama at the third Lake Martin Songwriters Festival, my guest is an award-winning Nashville-based singer, songwriter, guitar player, and producer who co-wrote Jason Aldean's hit, She's Country, which was the most played song on country radio across the U.S. in 2009 and held the number one position on the chart for two consecutive weeks and has had 181 million streams on Spotify alone. Her song, Loud, was selected as the official theme song for ACC football's 2010 season. She has also had cuts with Randy Hauser and George Clinton, among others, and of course, as a recording artist, has released her own original music along the way as well. Meanwhile, she is vice president of Sonash Publishing and also serves on the board of the Charlie Foundation, which we will hear about today. You've been hearing a song she co-wrote called Jealous of the Sky. Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Bridget Tatum. Hey, hey. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for taking time out of the Songwriters Festival to come and sit with me today. Let's get things started by having you share with the audience about the song that was just playing during the intro called Jealous of the Sky. Ashley Cook. So I started working with Ashley Cook at about 12 years old. She and her sister and I produced them as a duo that were the Lockets at the time. And not any kind of music that I would ever write or ever thought I would be writing. I'm like, am I in the middle of Taylor Swift territory now? But they were so talented together. So that's how I met them. And as time evolved and things went on, Ashley continued to write and ended up going to Belmont. And in the middle of the pandemic, when everybody was writing, I wasn't doing that. I love being home. And then Ashley said, hey, I hadn't written in a while and I want to get back to writing. Could we sit down and maybe get something, you know, down? And I said, sure, let's Mm -hmm. let's try it. She lost a really great friend of hers named Adam at 17, and mm. she said, I just feel like I don't, I don't even know what to say. I almost feel numb about it. She said, I just feel like I'm jealous of the sky, and I was like, well, then that's what we say about it. Mm. And so we sat down during the pandemic and wrote that song, which means a lot to me, too, when I think about my grandparents. So it's always reflective of him and my grandparents that I lost. But she's uh, on fire. She's out on tour with anybody from Luke Bryan to Cole Swindell. So she's doing pretty good and just released her own record. And you did a good job yourself of describing that because I'm getting choked up just listening to you talk about it. And so 
obviously that's the emotion, you know, as the songwriter that, that you want to, to evoke from the listener. And uh, that song, was it something that, like you said, like, that's what we're going to write and it came out right away? Or was it, no, it still took us a while to get there. Well, it always kind of takes you a minute to get there. You know, one song could be written in an hour and 15 minutes and your next thing could take the eight, hour, eight hours to eight years of the rest of your life. This one was all written in one day. But it was emotional throughout, so I think we may have paused here mm. or there for that, just to kind of take that in as human beings, because you're human, even though you're songwriters. Yeah. But um, I think she was there for about a half a day, and we ended up with that, recorded it down, you know, obviously now into our phones. We can do that pretty easy. And who knew that there was enough emotion that came out of it the team that she's working with now that became the single that they released, but also became the single that got her, her deal, mm. but you never know what they're going to do. You don't know how long they're going to be or how short, but I think it took about a half a day on that one. When someone like me asks you that question about how long it took to write it, you've written so many songs. Is it a case where you do forget a lot of them when you were there, where you were, all that kind of thing? Or do you just somehow have this brain that, I can tell you any song that's in my catalog, where I was when I wrote it, how long it took, all those kind of details. That's funny because I literally went right back to my kitchen. We wrote it at mm. the table in my kitchen and people that come over I'm on, on a farm outside of Nashville. And when people come in, they call that the magic table. There's a lot of songs that's been <laughs> written on that table. And it's this uh, collection of wood that the table's made out of. And I think sometimes the wood helps us tell stories. But no, puts me right back where I was because... If you write a song, which I hope we're doing, but if you write a song the right way, not only does it it affect you emotionally, it affects us emotionally first. So I think emotions take us back to memories pretty quick. So no, mm. when I think about it, I'm right back at that table yeah. when wow. we were writing that song. Wow. With as much as you've accomplished in your music career, this event is actually a first for you, the third Lake Martin Songwriters Festival, but your first time playing here. When that's the case, as much as it takes some time getting your bearings, finding your way around, maybe you're meeting some of the other songwriters for the first time, what do you come in with as the top goal that you want to hit when you're at something like this for the first time? Well, the funny of it is uh, I started talking to Steve about this event on back, so I had a little bit of a hand of it getting started. So it's kind of funny that I haven't been here until now. Goals, I mean, always we are... Um, getting to spend time with each other in a different capacity because in Nashville you're running around in 50,000 different zigzag patterns. So always goals is be able to catch up with everybody, the human side of it. Like, hey, how are you? How's your mom and dad? How's your dog? What's going on? Um, so that's a beautiful part of it for me. But as far as goals, I hope I come in here and give you guys the best possible show I can give you and connect with you through the music and the songs that I've written. Or I hope that for all the songwriters that are here and Maybe y'all let me come back. <laughs> well, and I love that answer for a few reasons, but for the listening audience who may think that the obvious answer should be, doesn't she want to sell CDs? You know, this is a, however you want to say yeah. it nowadays. CDs, stream it, whatever. Yeah. We got so I many mean, different is, terms. This is someone who is not a recording artist first. And I also would argue, and Bridget, I'm putting this in the form of a question, that you shouldn't go to a songwriters festival and say, well, my number one goal is to sell as much music to the people that come to my shows as I can. No, I mean, I hope that 
some people do sell what they've got, and I do hope people go and download. I mean, there are a lot of singer-songwriters, which is probably more of a category I fall in, so there's an entertainment value to it, too. So if you go and you do enjoy what a songwriter's doing and you enjoy their songs, absolutely support that songwriter because things are getting more slim and slim as we go on. So the general public supporting that allows us to carry on doing what we're doing. But, no, I think the goal is always to connect, and I think the goal is always to emotionally connect and give you guys an experience that you walk away from it going, I need to tell five more of my friends about that experience. I want them to experience that too, because these are the stories and you never get to hear the stories behind the songs until you're in the presence of the songwriters. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And in my opinion, eventually that will trickle down to, oh, by the way, I should look for that song and download it as opposed to, I love your approach. Your approach is not, we want you to buy the song. It's we want to connect with you first and connect with one another. So well said, well said. We've got a, a lot of really cool things to talk about. But for the folks in my audience who are just being introduced to you for the first time, wow, what a cool backstory you have. You're originally from South Carolina and wanted to be an attorney, yet you live in Nashville and have a ton of highlights in the music world that I read off in the intro. That's a huge jump from what you once thought your life was going to look like. What made you move to Music City and pursue music rather than stick with law in South Carolina? Still love law. <laughs> it's come in handy. Those things called contracts get in the middle of stuff, and you're like, oh, I know what that means. Still love law. Always, uh, I think I was talking to you and said I got a spirit of justice that either gets me in trouble or keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> and I still love law to this day. But when I was about 13, I started writing songs, and I was in a Southern Gospel group with my parents. Started mm. there at home. Mission churches, tent revivals where, man, when you go, it's more about how it feels than what it sounds like. And I just remember getting Jesus across is about the same as trying to get a song across to the general audience so that they'll accept whatever that emotion is. And, you know, being from a small town, you're thinking people call it a dream. I never looked at it like it was a dream. I looked at it like it was another job. But the reality in South Carolina, how do I get to this job versus being an attorney? How do I get to that job? One route seems a lot simpler than the other. Lo and behold, they're both very complicated and disorderly and chaotic and all the things. But, uh, yeah, in writing, songs just kind of never left me alone. My parents had finally split up, which we were all grateful in the house for that. And there was a cowboy from Texas that my mom ended up dating. And he introduced us to Clint Black and Garth Brooks one day. And I remember it was Garth Brooks for me. I heard, If Tomorrow Never Comes... And I thought, man, you can write things and it have this much emotion in it. I've I've never forgot that moment. And that tunnel visioned it for me. But to take that and push it ahead even more, it was an unfortunate incident. I was working at um, a motel, had a couple jobs then, always have worked hard. My work ethic's always been that. But I remember I didn't have change for a dollar and it was, um, you know, somebody, a girl of opposite color, And she took it as I wasn't giving her change and I was trying to be racist, which is really ironic because I love the culture of all music. And that Mm -hmm. kind of broke my heart when that happened. But she attacked me with a razor blade and Mm. survived it. You know, grateful for that. Went to Outer Banks, recovered on that for about six months, wrote a lot of songs about forgiveness, Mm. fished a lot, which is why I fish fishing (laughs) between my papa and those moments in my life always means something to me. And it's a place of peace. Um, but I'm grateful that she did that because it fast forwarded everything in my life and it made me go, huh, you know, I think we were talking about Thoreau, don't die with the music in you. And I'm like, I could have died with the music in me and Mm -hmm. it might be time to hightail it on to Nashville. So I, 
moved there cold turkey. I mean, I was going to say pretty cold turkey, but I'm like, no, I moved there cold turkey. Didn't know anybody. Mm. And the rest of that vision was, I think there's going to be a lot of work I got to put in. I want to go to college. So I ended up going to college there for the music industry. And the rest of it is just digging in a lot of hustling and a lot of grit. <laughs> so you did a great job right before I press record of determining that, that, that I'm very analytical. And so a couple things I picked up on in there, in what order did things happen for you? And to what extent did you get professional training? Meaning singing, you mentioned writing songs, I think you said 13, and playing the guitar. Which did you do first, second, third, and, and when did you start doing each? And then, like I said, self-taught or actual lessons? Great, great question. Uh, 13 was more of words, words and melodies. That's what showed up when I was 13. At about 14, 15, my grandmother on my dad's side of the family had gone to a yard sale, picked up two guitars, and I think I told y'all this was my first taste of the music industry and what that <laughs> looks like for females. She gave one to my cousin, gave one to me. She goes, he's going to be more serious about this, but mm. you guys, here's some guitars and y'all have fun. So... It was a right-handed guitar, and I'm left-handed, very much a southpaw, and all I could do at that time was play on muted strings, which is why that's a lot of the pattern of how I play, which is that rhythmic thing that I do when people are asking me what style is that. I'm like, I don't know. I just bang on a guitar. <laughs> um, but from there, figured out how to swap the strings around, and it was all by ear. I had a, a teacher that had mm. me, taught me a couple songs, and from there, it was everything was by ear and just discovery on the instrument itself. And then after that, it became uh, performance festivals, which was kind of ironic. I just wrote with Trisha Yearwood, which was amazing, and got to tell her, I don't know how many times I've sung, she's in love with the boy. So studying those writers of that time and those voices got me more interested in being an artist. And then as well, churches carried on, tent revivals, things like that. Uh, but country music was my love. You know, I grew up with Hee Haw with my papa, and I grew up with eight tracks in his truck. Anybody, anywhere from uh, Buck Owens to Roger Miller, which I think is some of the most well-crafted songs that you could ever hear as far as if you're going to twist phrases. And then all of that kind of ran into the 90s. And once I got into the 90s with country music, I mean, I just became lifelong fan of that for the rest of my life. And even today, the kids that are coming through are like, man, the 90s seems, I said, yeah, that was the best. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those, I don't want to say I told you so, but I told you so. Yeah. So it all came at different times and then all obviously at the end of the day came together in yeah. Nashville for me. And then it was, I want to get my education. I want to know what this is. This is music. Yes. But this is also a business. And I wanted to make sure I understood what the business side of this world looked like. There's a lot of, and you know this better than anyone, there's a lot of young people, I'm going to say, that just up and move to Nashville because they this is where I'm supposed to go and this is what's going to make things change for me in my music career. You just said that when you went there, you didn't know anybody at all. So Culture. your back is up against the wall because you don't know anybody. You're surrounded by all these other people that are trying to make it there also. I'm imagining you like bartending, waiting tables, things like that, and just trying to find your way around. Just talk about that immersion into Nashville. Yeah. So, I mean, when I got there, I was 22 turning 23 and was able to get into Nashville State, which is the community college there. And they had an insane music program that they had just implemented. And I got yeah. to be on the front end of that. So that was phenomenal. Shout out to Trisha Walker, who was my songwriting instructor. And that whole staff was amazing. But she and I had a special relationship. She helped me a lot. So then I'm in the middle of college. Then I'm playing writer's nights at one o'clock in the morning. You pop up to do one song, studying what they were doing and how they were doing it. You know, took the trip downtown. And at that time, you did not play Broadway. 
that was like the curse of death. You did everything but that. Now, you know, kids are going down there and making money. But you didn't go and play downtown. You played around Music Row. And you submerged yourself in Music Row. And you got in that community and started figuring out who was what and who was not what. So instead of jumping into it and just starting to play my music and going, here I am, I thought, man, I could do that or I could learn who the we're already here's are. So I took time learning that and the craft of other people that I was interested in and took time going to their shows and studying. And outside of that, obviously, studying the business, really understanding what it was going to be if things were put in front of me for contract purposes. So I did not just go out there and start banging my guitar out. I waited about two years Kind of before wow. I squeaked anything out, and it was a, uh, ironically, a cowboy from Texas that called me one night, and they had a guy that had fallen off of a rider's round, mm. and he called me and asked me if I'd be part of the rider's round, and I had a, a pretty good handful of songs when I came into town, and I said, uh, well, no, I mean, I got plans with my friends. I can't I can't make it. And he goes, Bridget, what the hell did you move here for? And I was like, wow. I'll be there at the rider's wow. round. So wow. that was my very first, and from there, the man that... that uh, he was the director of that writer's round. Uh, Lee Roscone, he has this saying, he's like, you look bad, man. Um, this Mexican guy, he, he lo- and he loves doing it. I'm not saying that in any way. He loves being Mexican. But um, that was his phrase, and he was just a, a trip in general. But I met him that night, and he said, this was great, man. You look bad, man. He said, but how can you put your own thing together? Well, I didn't know anybody. So I just started circulating the room going, hey, do you write songs? Do you sing songs? And the, my very first writer's round I ever played, I couldn't tell you one person that was on it. <laughs> but that's how it started for me, being able to have some kind of platform in Nashville. So I'm an organic person. I kind of need it to be organic. I'm um, a believer. I kind of need to know that it comes from the source that I believe in to know what my next steps are. So everything has been pretty organic, not forced. Wow. Wow. Tell the audience how big my eyes got when you said that you told him, no, I got something to do tonight. I'm yeah, like, you jumped what? up pretty. Yeah, for him being analytical, he just was like, wait, what? But I'm sure that's what his eyes looked like. And, I, you know, you're in that moment not thinking you've earned any stripes to be on a stage yet. Right. You're just trying to hone your craft and study and get yeah. it where it needs to be. But guess what? It never gets to where it needs to be. You just get in it and you start doing it. But I'm glad that I waited a little bit to have some more knowledge behind it before I did that. To even know, how do I conduct myself on a, on a writer's night? How What do I do on that stage? Do I tell stories? Is that too long? Is that too short? You know, you get to learn audiences that way and what they react to and just kind of how to conduct yourself as a writer on the stage so that you're interesting, especially when people don't know your songs. You know, they're just sitting there listening to somebody that's written songs and you don't have anything to hand them yet that's like a number one song that they're mm-hmm. going to be able to identify. So I'm glad that I took that time, but you do have to get in there and just start shucking it out, so to speak. It's almost like you were going to night school because you may take your classes during the day, but at night, well, now I'm going to go and I'm going to study at all these rounds. 100%. I'm going to listen. I'm going to watch. I'm going to observe. I'm going to talk to people. And this is going to be my crash course in the music business 100%. sitting in the audience. Did anybody ever try to tell you no when you said, that's it, I'm going to leave South Carolina and go to Nashville where people are telling you, don't go, don't go? Yeah, surprisingly enough, my mother. <laughs> but that's a that's a deep, deep story. <laughs> um, you know, you, if you're from a small town, right? Nobody ever thinks that uh, the things you see on TV or the things you hear on the radio are an actual possibility. And I think something drives your entertainment people in general past that. 
I think there's something that just goes off in you that tells you, whether that be for me, it'd be the Holy Spirit. For other people, it might be something completely different. But for me, that's my guide. And that small, still voice is really important. That's always served as a guide for me, but it's really, really important for me to make my next steps. So songs never left. That voice never left me. And that was my cue to do what I was doing. So it kind of didn't matter if there were no's. I like it. It only mattered when the yes was going to happen. So then let's fast forward to 2009 and you co-write She's Country. Four weeks ago on my show, Jeffrey Steele told me about when he wrote What Hurts the Most and how so many people in Nashville passed on it and didn't have a lot of great things to say about the song. Yet years later, Rascal Flatts cuts it. It's an absolute hit. Did She's Country have a long journey like that or was it immediate? And for that matter, was that song being written for Jason Aldean or was it getting shopped around and he's the one that finally took the pitch? So everybody listening and you mm-hmm. <laughs> know that this story is not real, but it is real. <laughs> it is real. Uh, it was the first song that I'd ever had cut. I wanted to simply rhyme Kakalaki because I'm from South Kakalaki and I just <laughs> love that word. And when I get on a word as a writer, I'm like, man, you got to do something with this word. It's so entertaining in itself just as that. And finally got all that rhymed, obviously. Ended up uh, a hunch of my manager at that time. She said, man, I think you and this guy, Danny Myrick, need to get together. And Danny at that time had written International Harvester, and he had had some gospel cuts as well. So Danny and I end up connecting, and usually in the industry, when you say on the back of a bus, that doesn't mean good, but this was good. <laughs> and we started talking about our uh, Southern gospel backgrounds, and we I mean, just really connected And he and I started writing songs. And once I finally had this done, it was like half of it was done, ready to go. And I had this title. And so we walk in the room and I was writing with him that day and I walk in the room and I'm like, man, there's not enough songs on the radio for country girls. There's a lot of songs about country girls, but they don't have their own song. And so he goes, all right, well, BT, tell me what you're thinking. And so, uh, I start singing what I've got, which was basically that first verse and part of that chorus and then part of that second verse. And it and it meant different females that are from places that are the country or females that are country. It, it, each thing in that song represents somebody that I know from somewhere or something I was influenced by that I ended up putting into that song. I like it. I like Mississippi it. Mississippi is where Danny's from. So he's kind of like, well, if it's going to say South Carolina, it's got to say Mississippi. <laughs> um so there's a little bit of that all in there, and each line has an explanation to it. And I love that song for that. But this is the part that's not real. <laughs> we get done with that song. We end up doing a demo dur- during the holidays and did this triple-time crazy kind of banjo thing. Jeff actually was the publisher for that song. Jeff Steele was. Wow. And he goes, man, I don't know what this is, but demo it up and let's see. So I didn't even know that the thing that I do or the cadence or the phrasing or any of that i didn't even know that that was different in any way shape or form Mm. remember if we'll go back i'm a big buck owens fan and i'm a big roger miller fan but outside of that i'm a big hip-hop fan too Ah. so all of these things blended together to get that kind of rapid fire off lyric that's going but at the time when it was pitched it was pitched directly to him but we did not have him in mind when we wrote it okay and his producer put it on hold michael knox and they kept it like a baby for nine months. So that was the journey of the song. I had uh, John Rich from Big and Rich call me. He wanted it. Uh, James Otto wanted it at that time. So this song had a lot of heat that was around it. Now, you know, this is my first, going to be my first cut. So I don't know what all this heat Mm. even means yet, but I'm like, 
man, it sure just seemed like a lot of people like this song. And I didn't understand that this was going to be something that was going to partly change our genre later. Had mm. no clue. You just write songs, right? So it gets into Jason's hands. They hold it for nine months. At the end of that nine months, this is the phone call. Well, Jason's cut the song. It's going for download that night. It's They're shooting a video the following week. Wow. He's performing it on the CMAs. Wow. Ta-da! That's not a real story. Oh That's gosh. what I'm saying. So I pulled oh over gosh. to kind of take it in, but you can't even take that in. That's just not the way it looks around every single song you write, right? <laughs> There's usually a lot of different other factors, and it just, who knew? Wow. Caught on fire, blew up. Who knew that was going to happen? I mean, I ended up opening for him several different shows. The first time I ever heard it, was on the CMAs. That's the mm. first time I ever heard it. I never, I told this lady beside me, I said, man, I've never wanted George Strait to shut up so much in my life. And she goes, you don't like George Strait? I'm like, I love George Strait. But Jason Aldean's coming out to sing my song. So that's the first time I ever heard it. But the first time I got to experience it, they grabbed my shoulders and put me in the front of the stage. And I, you know, I was like, I don't need to be in the front of the stage, whatever. And they were like, no, we want you to stand right here. And I just will never forget something that felt like a force coming from behind mm. me and everybody knew every single word. And I remember at that moment going, okay, this feels like something's going to happen. Mm. And it did. And it happened really fast. And that's why I said that story is not real. Yeah, yeah that is so <laughs> but cool. But a blessing. That Huge. is so cool. Wow. When you said that you were getting calls from John Rich and from others, explain that process in terms of how did they hear the song? How does it... So Jason had it on hold, and hold is just another four-letter word to us, right? That doesn't mean mm-hmm. cut is our word we yeah. like to hear, and single, <laughs> we love that word even better. But a hold is just another four-letter word for they're probably not going to cut it. But when I they, thought a hold, is there such a thing as an exclusive and a non-exclusive? Because I thought a hold means you can't show it to anyone else when an artist has it on hold. If they're going to tell us they're going to cut it. Otherwise, we're all doing business. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but he did have it on hold, and I did honor that. John, I really don't know how it got over to him. He called me directly about that and and asked me about the song. And I said, hey, man, I appreciate that you like the song. I really do. But Jason's got it on hold, and we're going to honor that. If something changes, I'll let you know. I see. I don't know. It could have gone out into a different different channels, and Jason could have been the first guy that put it on hold. And then they had it in their possession, too. I see. Who knows? I don't know. But they they started calling for it. And no, I mean, obviously, I... You, you kind of hold out for the hold. And, <laughs> I, you know, I, I said, hey, guys, we're going to honor this. And if something changes, we'll figure that out. Got it. Got it. I'm joined today on location at the third Lake Martin Songwriters Festival in Alabama by award-winning singer, songwriter, guitar player, and producer Bridget Tatum. Visit her official website at BridgetTatum.com. I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. On her website, you will see links, logos, to follow Bridget on social media, meaning Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Look there as well for the button to get you over to Apple Music so you can purchase downloads of Bridget's original music. Plus, do give her a follow on Spotify as well. You will also want to keep up with her online for information on where and when you can see her perform live. In the second half of this episode, you're going to hear she is performing quite, quite a bit these days. I want to reinforce the privacy aspect of the OWL app that you hear me talk about each week. We've all been in situations where we meet someone in a professional setting and it gets awkward around asking for a number to exchange 
text messages or have a phone call with OWL, you are making voice calls through their app to experts who are on there that you want to talk to. So nobody has to worry about not wanting to give their number out, and calls can happen just that quickly as a result. We all know that so, so many people are spending far too much time on social media. Instead, use your phone to make new connections that can help you in your career pretty much regardless of what industry you're in. On my podcast website, nhte.net, tap or click anywhere that it says home and then read the article I have posted there under the headline, Help Now a Phone um, App Call Away to learn more about OWL. I've also got links in there for you to download the app for free from either the App Store or Google Play. Plus, you will see my invitation code, which is a required field as you're setting up the app on your phone. Get on OWL and start your way to making new great connections for your career. Bridget, another online destination that people can check out is sonashpublishing.com. Back in the intro, I mentioned that you are the vice president, but when did that company start up? And for anyone in the audience who is an aspiring singer-songwriter, can they make contact to see about coming on board with y'all? Or is it, no, we go find the writers. We don't accept cold calls. Uh, so let's go back to the even the name of the company. Well, I'll take you back. I had the name of that for a whole other venture that I was looking into doing. And Sonash became the name of the company because I had combined where I'm from to where I landed. Mm. So South Carolina to Nashville is how that name became. I like it. Uh, also a reflection of my grandparents, too. I always consider them and think about them. But the company itself got formed. You know, they say where there's adversity, there's opportunity in the middle of the pandemic. I uh, ended up meeting a guy named T-Ray that I did some mentorship with. He wanted to improve songwriting or figure out, you know, how to be a better songwriter. And then that quickly turned into, well, hey, Bridget, can I talk to you about, like, if I wanted to do this for real, what does that look like? And I'm like, well, it, took, it looks like a lot of grit and a lot more time. <laughs> so in talking about that, he obviously is a businessman but had a passion for, for songwriting itself. And at the end of a deal that we had put together for like a mentorship, he said, well, what else can we do? And I'm like, I don't know what else I can teach you. I mean, you just, the rest of this is get in there and work. And he said, well, I don't know about that. I think you probably teach me more. And he said, but seriously, what could we do together? And from there it grew into I mean, we could go into publishing, it could go into management, we could do a lot of different things, but your interest seems to be songwriting. So from that conversation, it grew into us being partners, um, and another guy that he has always been partners with, Drew, shout out to Drew, because Drew's awesome. And the next thing you know, we're in the middle of negotiations and contracts and that whole world about partnership in a publishing company. Mm. And we started putting things together, so Sonash stuck, and... As we move forward in everything, it kind of moved faster than the company was going together. But I encountered Emma Zink in Denmark, of all places, and she had been kicking around town for like five years. So it was kind of strange that she and I didn't know each other. Not that we're similar creatures, but there are similarities there. And, and it didn't make any sense to all of the peers of why we did not know each other. Met her around a bonfire, was extremely impressed with her talent, sent T. Ray a message like, hey, I, I found you know, who I want to sign. So when you're saying, do we, do you solicit it? All that? No, we just really go and spend time in the community, figuring out what everybody's work ethic looks like, who they are as people. Are these people going to fit into our company? 
their writing style, maybe what we need to develop out, or maybe if they don't need development at all, are they a good fit for what we do? So approach of it was to create a really good integrity in the company, a really good integrity with the writers to, for a change, care about them and their craft. Yes, everybody wants a return. We'd all be liars if we said that we didn't want to make money at what we're doing. But how do we care about them and their craft and their life? A lot of times you get into these companies and they don't really care about what you've got going on with your life. Just, you know, give me the songs. Just keep writing the songs. Mm -hmm. So I think all the things encompassed together. Obviously, as a songwriter, I know that it does. And And when we started this, I said, well, I want to maintain a really good culture. I want the writers to have a say-so in what that culture looks like. And I want the writers to have a say-so in what the integrity of everything looks like. Mm -hmm. So it was not recreating the wheel, but going back to a little bit of how old Nashville was, it was definitely more of a situation of like, everybody knew what people's lives looked like and everybody was involved in that. And if there was a man down in the community, everybody wanted to help and dig in. So Bringing some of that back and giving it that integrity and that culture is kind of what I wanted to do and create, and we've all done together. And then, yeah, we sign a Emma Zink and we sign a Seth Michael, and then, of course, I write. So that's where we are now. It's always going to stay small. It's always going to be a boutique company. We don't want to—this is not about, oh, let's just grow this thing and make piles of money. This is, no, let's select our people carefully, and let's give them the best footing and the best chance that they possibly can have with their career. There's so much that I like about that answer. I picked up on when you said, what's their work ethic like? What are they like as a person? So in other words, it's, of course, they have to be a talented writer. Right. But you didn't say, is this person a quality writer? What are, the, what are their songs that you didn't focus just on the music? And I love that because it's not unlike, I host a completely different show. I asked one of the owners of the Kansas City Chiefs, what's your your best sporting memory? And I thought he's going to say Super Bowls. And he talked about going to Wimbledon when he was 13 with his dad. And so there are those things that we all seem like we get caught up in downloads and all these metrics that, yeah, of course the song has to be there. I mean, especially, you know, we're in Nashville. That's what we're all here for. But I love that you talked about, Let's have this family environment. Let's all have each other's back. Let's be good people. Yeah. Let's run the business ethically. And yeah, of course, we're going to go and look for writers that check all these boxes, not just their talent level. Yeah, especially with the temperature today, with the world that we're in today. I feel like everything's moving so fast that people don't have time to pay attention to those things or they don't take the time to pay attention to those things. So we can stream it all day long. We can download it all day long. But at the end of the day, these are human beings. So it was more like, I want to care about these human beings and I want to cultivate what's already there with them to give them the best possible chance they can have. So back on episode 399 of this show, my guest was Emma Zink. And folks, I'm going to put a link on the show page for Bridget's episode on nhte.net to that interview. So you can go back and hear my conversation with Emma. But Bridget, last night, I got to see you perform and Emma did a song that is an interesting case study in how a song can come together after an initial idea that you really kind of wrestle with for a while. If you wouldn't mind just taking over from there and and share that. Yeah. So um, I was talking about, I I think I was talking about an artist and I I may have been on Instagram because I like Instagram better than anything else. It's quick. It's easy. But I think I was on that and I was flipping through some pictures and I made a comment to Emma, I'm like, man, it just breaks your heart, doesn't it? And she's like, what? And I'm like, 
you know, just a sad world and happy pictures. Like everybody's using these filters to make themselves look like not who they are. When you meet them, it's like, whoa, sticker shock, right? So as we were talking about that, she was like, hey, that's a that's a great title. And I'm like, yeah, there is something to that, huh? I said, we just, we'll put it down and then we'll get back to it. Because a lot of titles go on our phones and then we live with it and get together. And finally, it's like the right people for the idea. And she had thrown it out every time we'd been in the room. And at first I'm like, man, does she not have any more ideas? Is she being lazy right now? (laughs) And she had just thrown it out every single time. And it did not hit me like it needed to be written then. And sometimes I just think and and feel through things more actually than I think through them. I needed to give me an emotion first so I can convey that to you. Mm. And we got in this right with a guy named John Caldwell that we call hip hop. And in the middle of that ride, I'd never, actually never ridden with John before, but in the middle of the ride, she brought it up again. And I'm like, man, she's really like on this. And I said, well, what are you thinking? Because, you know, she's an excellent articulate guitar player. And she played, so. I don't know, maybe two licks on the guitar. And I just went, oh, this is what you're trying mm. to, okay, okay. And she literally said, yeah, that's what I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> but the pictures started happening. And then okay. the very first of it came, you know, first lines of it. Uh, John and Alexis get along great. Since they said their vows, he's only been on one date. And all I could see from there is the world's broken heart, so to speak. So how do we emotionally convey the world's broken heart living in this false reality that they're trying to sell each other, which is really the stress point of everybody. If they could review that it's part of your stress. You just don't know it because you function in that capacity now. Mm -hmm. So how to capture all of that in that song and not make it, um, as the kids call it, chuggy or all the words that they use, (laughs) right? Cringe. Um, for me, it's, you know, campy, how to write that song and not make it that way was going to be a challenge. And I knew that the idea was big so that day, it felt like that baby needed to be born in that song, and I try to stay out of the way of a song. Jeff had me help with one of his classes one day, and he goes, do you have any advice for him? I said, I absolutely just can't tell a song what to do. <laughs> and I mean, he turned around, he goes, that's genius. And I was like, really? You're Jeff Steele, but you really cannot tell a song what to do. And if you start doing that, then you're not going to get the song. You're going to get an idea of the song, but the song knows exactly what it wants to say. So that day was the day to finally write that song. And I'm, I'm glad if you love it, I love it. It's one of my, my most favorite ones that we've written. And folks, I'll put a link on the show page for Bridget's episode to the Jeffrey Steele interview also, because he talked about, he knows there's a song in the room. It's just listening for it. And, and right I there. love the story that you told. I wanted the audience to hear that sometimes that's how long it can take. It can go from, I got this great idea for a title and it sits in a phone or it sits in a notebook or it sits wherever And all of a sudden, it's something like a couple little licks that Emma plays on a guitar that for some reason that day, the light goes on and you go, okay, now I got it. Yeah. And I I very much write like that. I've got to, I have to feel the temperature. I have to see the colors. I have to know what it smells like, where we are. All of these things have to come together in, in my head for me when I'm writing. Everybody writes a little bit different, but as far as the way I write, if you stylist, you know, as a stylistic way to approach it. I've got to see the pictures. I got to be there in the song and then allow the song to tell me, okay, now it now it's like words moving around my brain, right? That I'm starting to put together because I'm like, oh God, okay, the song's coming fast. It's trying to tell me a lot. 
But sometimes songs are trying to tell you really slow, and those songs are, are slower babies that want to be born. Mm-hmm. So you got to step back and go, all right, this one wants to yeah, tell me something I, in a small form. I did pick up before, and when you said that you need to feel the emotion of the song first before you just go and write it. And so finally that day, something about those guitar licks that Emma played, it finally all hit you and you said, okay, now I'm ready. Yeah. Hey, if you think about it, as a, as in general, what we've been exposed to musically, I love you doesn't really mean anything. It does, but when you say it out like out like that, it's it's kind of like, all right, I mean, I've heard that. I will always love you shifts you into a completely different mm. spectrum, right? Wow. wow, yeah. When you hear it like that, and Dolly does that to you, <laughs> takes you to a whole different planet, right? Well said, well said. Uh, tell us about the Charlie Foundation, which I mentioned back in the intro that you serve on the board of. I do. So I've served on the board of the Charlie Foundation, my gosh, I don't know how many years now, at least 15. Um, it started on back even at a time in my life where I had worked at these different jobs and was in the middle of my music and had a band. And a lady named Carolyn Miller was the founder of the charity. And lo and behold, I ended up having some free time to be able to go and help her. And so showed up to be a helpmate to that. And it's a an organization that up to 18 years of age, if it's mentorship, if it's got something to do with abuse, if it's got something to do with sexual abuse, there's centers that we contribute to for that. Anything that applies to kids up to 18 years of age then we share the funding with some mm. of these places that they can't hard, they're doing great work but they can't keep their lights on. Yeah. So I love the mission of that and after a while of just working alongside of her which is a massive boxing event that takes place in Franklin, Tennessee on back that I actually boxed in but um, we worked on that to begin with and then it continued to grow. So now there's several different events through the year that the Charlie Foundation collects for and then distributes out to all of these charities in different forms wow. up to 18 years wow. of age for kids. Oh, God bless you. That's that's wonderful to hear. Cool. Yeah. And I love that it's nothing to do with music. It's not, well, it's a natural connection for yeah, me. Yeah, it's because, a natural. Yeah, you're going to have people in the industry show up, but no, nothing, nothing specific yeah. with music. At the start of today's show and then in the middle when I was giving out all of your online destinations, I mentioned that you are also a producer. And other than a very little bit at the beginning when we were talking about the song that I played to start things off, we haven't really talked about that role yet. So share more with us about the work that you've done from the producer's chair. I love this. I actually love producing, and I did not know how much I was going to love it. I, I discovered I like finding the artist in another artist because it's, it's sometimes hard when you get in the room for people to remove their ego from it or for them to remove their artistry from it. But what I've learned is it's one of my most favorite things to do is get in there and dig in and go, man, if they can just understand they can do this with that and I can help shape that out, then I think that I can get them where it is in their head. They think they are or they want to be. Mm. So on back, the first project that I started on, obviously a lot of my stuff, but when I was with the duo, the Lockets, I learned a lot through that about a, a different, it was country, but it was more of the pop-driven country. So that's that's definitely opposite than what I do as an artist. So going in to find the artist and them was really interesting to even see what I was going to pull out of myself as a producer. But I love to find that artist. I also love the kinetics of how the music comes together, right? Like mixing, I could sit there all day long until it's perfect and it you'll never get it perfect, right? <laughs> as production world, you'll never get it perfect. And I just, I got really interested in it even more after the lockets. And then that fast fast forwarded into people that were calling me to go in and do production. There was an independent project I did, AJ Sanders, always be proud of that music. Another guy named Dave McElroy, that was an independent project. Um, I'm in the middle of production now, but 
it ran into Uncle Si from Duck Dynasty. Of all people that you think you're going to meet in your lifetime, it ain't this guy, right? But I'm at a red carpet. I'm playing. He had a band going, and we just got along. It was like we were family, and we started talking, and he said, I like that girl. If she ever wants to come out, I want her to come out. And I was like, you know what? They're funny. I like them. I like to go see them when they're on the road sometime. And then that turned into a two-week-later phone call that said, hey, you want to join a band? And, I mean, honestly, I was like, this band? Because I don't know if I could put my reputation on the line for that. (laughs) But the song showed up, and the artistry of that showed up. So I even got to produce that project, which is Uncle Si and the Psychotics, Mm -hmm. because he drove us insane. But it was myself (laughs) and his uh, daughter-in-law, Marsha Robertson. And then pushed through all of that production-wise. I ended up meeting Emma in Denmark, And it was like the two things just came together. So I don't solely produce Emma. Emma and I do co-production on it because she has a really good, well-rounded idea of how she wants it to bleed through as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I think that the two things that we do allow us to work really well together and get her artistry all the way out. So currently I'm in production with that. And then a new artist that is uh, Michaela Lane. She's done some stuff recently with the guy from Yellowstone, Forey. And she and I got together, and it was kind of a natural, organic thing. I told you I like to function in an organic way. And it was very organic in that I understood her world of rodeo music. So I got to sit down and get the cowboy stuff out with her, and uh-huh. so currently in production with her, too. So Emma is my priority, of course, at the top of the list. And then there's a couple other smaller projects that I'm doing. But I really love finding the artist. I, I, there's nothing like watching an artist light up when you help them get their music right. And I can just tell your enthusiasm and just the spirit with which you're saying all this, that you've really found something that is kind of a new lane for you that you're just ready to press on the gas and say, let's do more of this. While we're talking about live performances, you being here at the Lake Martin Songwriters Festival, but you were just performing down in the U.S. Virgin Islands right before you came here. Plus, you're leaving Alabama to play the day after tomorrow in Pennsylvania. In June, you performed in, I believe, Mississippi and Las Vegas. Plus, in May, you were down in Key West performing. (laughs) <laughs> Let me come up for air. Is this a case of I might be busy writing songs and working with the publishing company, serving the Charlie Foundation, being a producer, but being on stage performing is just always going to be near the top of my priority list? I just think it's always going to be there. Whether it's at the top, you know, things shift on a weekly basis and a monthly basis. Maybe this year yields even more that Emma and I will be doing, right? Maybe it's geared more towards the production world. I just think as long as there's a viability in me as an artist and people want me to play, then I want to be there and share that. There's nothing like the exchange either of, I always say there's a space between those speakers and the people, and that's our space. Mm. And there's nothing like that exchange between myself as an artist and the people that are listening. So I love if there's a way that I spread something to them that either brings them joy or makes them reflect on something or um, makes them feel something in general I, I'm, I'm always going to have the artist in me, too. I can't find the artist in other people if I don't understand it as an artist. So I think playing live is going to always be there. I'm going to always be an entertainer. Let me say, in audience, Bridget and I are, for all intents and purposes, just meeting each other. Of course, we met last night when I saw her perform. But I'm happy for you because you're not out pushing a new record, a new single, anything like that. And I'm so happy for you that you're getting so many chances to perform live at a time when you're not looking for it and it's just all coming to you. Just so showed up it's, it's, organic again. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm done when God says I'm done. That's it. I Amen. mean, I've been at this for a long time and I've had a lot of opportunity to 
be able to kind of cultivate this the way that I, I would like for it to look or the way I'm led for it to look. And as long as there's, as long as it's in me, then I got to get it out of me, so to speak. I mean, you just have to. I am going to eventually record another body of work. That's kind of been ongoing for years and years now. The problem is I don't know what body of work <laughs> I want to record because I'm so all over the map when I write for myself. So um, I don't know. Maybe down the pike there might be something where Emma and I do something together, and who knows how all this grows. I, I do love working with her, and I think you know she kind of gets me as an artist too and what, what that looks like. Um, Danny Meyer was my producer before we worked on the release of the singles that I had, but it is, it is due time for another project to be surfacing. I just got to figure out what that is. <laughs> I said I'm good at finding the artist in everybody else, right? <laughs> I didn't say it was in me. All right. So while we're talking about live performances, we're going to close today with Bridget's live version of She's Country. Bridget, we'd already talked about the song earlier, but this recording, when was this? Was it a conscious we're going to record this tonight so I can release it? Or was it, oh, lots of my shows get recorded and I just picked this one to release? For that matter, where was it recorded? Just all the details about this recording. Well, it was recorded in Nashville at 12th and Porter, a very, very sweaty 12th and Porter at that time, <laughs> which is one of the venues that allowed for artists to showcase. And of course, Nash Nashville shifted so much, so we don't have that venue anymore, unfortunately. But 12th and Porter will always be a, a place that will mean something to me. In my mind now, it's gone, but in my mind it will. So we recorded it there. The reason that we recorded it is because initially I would have been recording She's Country. I sang the work tape that we initially did. And when I went out on radio tour, when I would play it live in the radio stations, they'd go, hey, can I record that? And so all of these acoustic recordings exist in the mm. sphere, wherever they are, wow. of me playing wow. it, which turned into... Man, this has so much energy. Maybe we just need to record the live version and make it available to people. So that's how we ended up recording live version there. So is that a good thing or a bad thing if an artist is going on a radio tour and they're being asked everywhere, hey, is it okay if we record this? Do you mind? Because it starts to get into this area of you go, well, wait a minute. If all these radio stations are going to have something that I'm not, why should I come in here and record for them? Is, it, is that a good problem to have? Well, I just think that was it was a compliment to what I was doing. They liked yeah. the version. At that at that time, Amy Jason was out, out there, and he was on the road doing it. But I would go into the stations, which they were really sweet about this, but they would say, oh, my gosh, I love your version way better mm. than Jason's. Can we record that? So it's more they would record it to go alongside the interview, and then from time to time, I think there's some stations that became a fan, and they wanted to play it. No. I mean, I think if you like what I do and you're a fan of it, thank you and play it all you want. And if Emma or one of your artists with Sonash Publishing went out on a radio tour, you would not discourage them. You wouldn't tell them, hey, if a radio station says, can I record it? You tell them, no, they can't. I mean, we've already recorded it at that point. So by the time you enter the doors of the radio station, we've already recorded whatever the master project of that is. So yeah. they're just asking for an acoustic piece of that so yeah. that they can utilize it i mean either way they have to we have to license that just like anything else <laughs> what a great great episode this has been I, I knew it would be very entertaining very informative thank you for all the great insights and again i thank appreciate you. you taking time out of the festival to sit and talk with me for now here this entertainment thank you great my questions. pleasure my pleasure folks with that i will wrap up another new episode of now here this entertainment my sincere thanks to award-winning singer songwriter guitar player and producer bridget tatum Visit her official website at BridgetTatum.com 
As I mentioned before, I will have a link to it on the show page for this episode on my podcast website, nhte.net. Do engage with her on social media on bridgettatum.com. Find links, logos there to go over and follow her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Instagram is also my favorite, by the way. Yeah. There is also a link there to go follow her and stream her music on Spotify, and you're certainly welcome to do that. But support Bridget by purchasing downloads of her original music from the likes of Apple Music, which there's a link for on her website, or through other online digital music retailers. Let Bridget know you heard her and her music on Now Hear This Entertainment and keep up with her online for information about where and when you can go see her perform live. I do truly hope that you like this show and that you're enjoying what I'm doing every week on Now Hear This Entertainment. If you've made it all the way to the end, thank you for having stuck with Bridget and I, and I'm going to assume that that means that you do like the podcast. You can take action to let me know that you appreciate the work that I do to keep making this show happen Every week, every month, more than nine years without missing once by going on my podcast website, nhte.net, and then using the yellow Buy Me a Coffee logo that you'll see there. This is not a sponsor. It's not affiliated with any brand or chain. It's just a fun way for you to send your support, your thanks to me, including a note that I will see when you utilize that option. You can also just head directly to buymeacoffee.com slash brucew. That's going to do it for episode 495. Thanks ever so much for listening. I'll send you out today with another song from Bridget Tatum. This is the one she just talked about. It's her live version of She's Country. Well, we needed a country song with some balls in it, didn't we? The groove, you know, the groove was whatever the groove was. What put the balls in it was the country girls that it talks about. That's what put it in there. Just a little bit different. Here we go. She's a hot little mother in a pickup truck. And a sweet money done jacked it up. She from South Kakalaki, the chain of Sassafrasi. Bad mama jamming from down and I'm a mellow. She's raging, Cajun. Build a tick from Brunswick to St. John's of Page Willis. Southern girl, sexy swinging boy, brother, she's all country.
Crazy, let's we might as well just really do it, right? <laughs> 